Hey everyone, this is Cam Garrity. Welcome back to This Should Have Been a Phone Call. Today on the show, we have Katie Osborne, better known online at her handle, Katieosaurus. She's become a sensation on TikTok as an ADHD advocate and for using her platform to educate, discuss, and demystify neurodivergence. She's the co-host of the podcast, Katie and Eric's Infinite Quest, which is an ADHD&D adventure where they discuss the experiences and challenges of living with ADHD, depression, and navigating life as neurodivergent adults, all while playing Dungeons and Dragons. But, but this doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of all of her talents. She is also a certified sex educator, professional streamer, and a self-described theater nerd with two master's degrees in Shakespeare. She's performed in countless live performances of the Bard's work, which we talk about a bunch in this chat. And she played Annie through seasons one through four of the blockbuster sci-fi series Ships of the Northern Fleet. Such a great show. Make sure you look it up. Katie and I have been following each other on TikTok for about a year now. I fell in love with her kindness and willingness to be so open about her life and experiences. I've learned so much thanks to her about new ways to be empathetic and understanding of people who see the world differently than I do. To me, she's the kind of person we all needed in our lives growing up. This should have been a phone call with my modern day Mr. Rogers, Katie Osborne. What kind of projects are you working on these days? Have you been able to get back into doing much of any theater? Oh man, not recently. I When I moved to Atlanta, I really kind of feel like I, I shot myself in the foot. Well, the pandemic shot me in the foot. I was just kind of along for the ride because I just, when I moved to Atlanta, I was like just kind of starting to like get into like theater and like that kind of thing. And then basically the pandemic hit and now I'm doing full-time content creation, which is very different than theater. But the demands on my time are such that it's like really tough to commit to doing both theater and content creation, especially like with a company where maybe they don't like want you like filming in the room. You know what I mean? Which is totally valid. You know, like that is that's I will respect whatever rules the company throws at me. Um, But but basically, like right now, I haven't done theater in months. I really miss it. I'm really like I'm starting to feel that like hole in my life you know what I mean totally totally there's there's definitely that calling like you feel the the bugs start to scratch at you a little bit like come on come on get on the flats get on the flats yeah well and I I do such a specific type of theater like that's the other thing it's like I don't like theater it's weird I'm a theater person who doesn't like theater I don't like theater I like Shakespeare I like Shakespeare and I like a very select few musicals and so one of the reasons why it works so hard to get so much Shakespeare training and like devote, I mean, the bulk of my adult life to doing Shakespeare is because it's like the only theater that I like. And so it's just like, I love going to see other shows. Like I love going to theater, but being in like modern theater, it just does not scratch the same itch as like being in like a Shakespeare. And so it's hard because like there's so much great new work that's happening in Atlanta and it's so good and it's all of it's phenomenal. And I go see it. I'm like, I would, this is so good and it's incredible and it's amazing. And I would be absolutely miserable being in this play. I just want to do Hamlet. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. That's so great. Yeah. Have you ever seen the show uh, slings and arrows? Oh my God. My entire life is defined by that show. I'm not even kidding. I watch that show once. I watch it through like once every six months, like on like by clockwork. Yeah. The first man, this is a true story. The first guy that I ever dated, the only reason why I dated him was because he dressed like Jeffrey Tennant. It took me like a really long time to realize that that was why I was dating him. But I absolutely dated this guy who was like 20 years older than me because he was like a Jeffrey Tennant clone. And I'm fully convinced that when I grow up, I am going to be Ellen, like Ellen is cool. I fucking love that show so goddamn much. I love it. I've actually just been rewatching it because it it would be one of those shows that I would put on like as I was going to bed and I would just enjoy having it in. I had I have them all on DVD and I recently updated to a new computer without a CD drive. Oh, that's the worst. It's awful. And I have like it doesn't stream anywhere it it, for a long time wasn't on in the itunes store to be able to buy and they just added it yeah 
And so I'm like, oh, this is great. So I, I just just yesterday I finished the last episode of the the King Lear season. Oh, but um, I just I I too had sort of a I, I feel like I was personifying that show because I always joked uh, I have a, an old British mentor from college who I always said when he when he dies he's gonna come back and haunt me. It's gonna be your and Oliver, I, ex- <laughs> exactly, and we'll just direct plays together that way. That's delightful. I've been, I actually started rewatching it too because uh, Eric has never seen okay. it. And so it's like, it's like, that's one of those shows where like you have to watch it to like understand me as a person. And so I was like, okay, we have to watch Slings of Arrow. Yeah. So I've been watching through it again and I was like, oh my God, I just, I forget how much I love that show. And then I watch it. I'm like, oh God, I love this show so much. But my, one of my like very, very weird claim to fame is that, um, I wrote a season four, like I wrote like what I thought a good season four for Slings and Arrows would be. And through like fate and happenstance and circumstance, I know for a fact that both Bob Martin and Paul Gross are aware of it and they know about it. And at least one of them has said that they thought it was really fun and a good idea. And I carry that with me. In my soul. I was going to say, that's like rocket fuel for you of just like, oh, this is <laughs> it. It's such a good, it's such a good, like, I'm so proud. It's one of the best things I've ever written and it will never see the light of day. Because it's like, hey, you guys want like an entire season of Slings and Arrow fan fiction? Yeah. Oh, no, nobody wants that? Okay, cool. But I do have a season four if they ever decide to remount the show. Does it, does it retcon Oliver into it? It, it, it does. It's, I mean, the entire cast, it, it basically stays with the entire cast. The only people people that aren't in it are uh, uh, Cyril and and his partner because he died in real life. Okay. Um, and so when I wrote season four, they had already, like he had already passed away. And so I wrote that into the show. So there's like a whole thing about how like Cyril has passed away and they're like mourning him. It's like, oh, it's like, I did so much fucking research for this like dumbass show that will never see the light of day. I'm very proud of it though. It's very good. It's a very good plot. Oh, that's fantastic. No, I've, I've done that with, <laughs> Uh, with Sesame Street, actually, segments that <laughs> do not exist on the show anymore, like the word of the day, I've written bits for that of like, <laughs> what would happen if Stephen Colbert and Grover were talking about heroic? Or I did a, they don't really do parodies anymore. And I wrote, which is a shame. It really, really is. It was one of the great ways of getting the parents involved in watching. Mm-hmm. But um, it was right after the first season of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt came out. Oh, yeah. And I did an Unbreakable Prairie Dawn. That is delightful. My my secret dream is to go on Sesame Street and talk about ADHD. I know that it's, like, never going to happen, but, like, I just keep putting it into the universe because, like, maybe someday someone someone will ask me, but it's just, I want it more than anything. I love the Muppets. I love the Muppets so goddamn much. It's, oh, God. I just, I I don't know what it is. It's just like a whole thing for me. It's fine. We're all okay. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm not going mean, to cry they're... about the Muppets in the first five minutes of your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I mean, I, I could talk about them all day as I sit here in a room filled with Muppet shit. I have mine, but that's it. Nice. No, <laughs> that's perfect. There. That's perfect. <laughs> and you're, I'm jealous you're in Atlanta, so you're right by the, the center. Yeah, my husband is the technical director there. Oh, no way. Yeah. Oh, that's so crazy. Okay. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I've got all sorts of friends who who work there or have gone through the place. Yeah, my husband, my husband Chris, he is the. Uh, I think he might be the assistant tech. I don't know. I always forget what his title is, but he's fancy. Sure. He's a fancy man at the puppetry center. That's so cool. I love it. But no, back to your bringing. You know, talking about ADHD on the show. I think there's absolutely a place for that kind of thing. I mean, especially with sort of the new conversations about neurodivergency and just all those different topics uh whether or not it's part of the main show or they have they do a lot of stuff that's not doesn't end up on the the pbs hbo stuff yeah i was like i'll be in a youtube video i don't care i just want to talk to elmo about adhd it's all i want in the whole world like i would die i would just have to like die i'd be like i've hit it i've this is my peak (laughs) well and you also have to imagine that there's probably a handful of muppets who already have it and have had it for 50 oh, years i'm pretty sure all of them yeah. <laughs> except maybe kermit i don't think kermit has adhd i've thought a lot about it but i'm pretty sure like pretty much everybody on sesame street has ADHD. <laughs> who 
was your favorite teacher from elementary school? Oh, God. I, when I was in eighth grade, I don't know if eighth grade counts as elementary school, but one of the first teachers that I ever had who really like looked at me and like I think saw potential uh, was this pheno- my phenomenal eighth grade teacher. Her name was Connie Urtel. And I, I still remember her. I still talk about her. She was so good. She was such a good teacher. And she, the way that we did it in junior high was, was like, you would switch between three different teachers to sort of like get you ready for high school, you yeah. know? And so we had Mrs. Hertel for like English and history. And I think, I don't know, like literature, like social studies, like that kind of stuff. But then we had a different math and a different science teacher. But Ms. Rattel, like, she just got me. Like, she got me in a way that I don't think a lot of my other teachers had. Because now I know, like, to bring ADHD into it. But, like, I was absolutely living with at least one undiagnosed neurodivergency. And I think, like, she just, like, saw me struggle, like, in a lot of ways that other teachers didn't. And so she always just, like, she took really particular care to, like, support me and to make sure that I felt like seen and valid, but at the same time, never let me get away with any bullshit, like never. And it was amazing. And it was like the first time that I'd ever really had a teacher be like, I know you can do better than this. You're not trying because you don't want to try, not because you can't do it. And she like, she changed my life. Like she was one of the reasons why I got really into theater. She was one of the people who really encouraged me to start writing she really like ignited my love of history, which is like, you know, led down the path to Shakespeare. Like she was so important. She was such an important person in my life. And it was just like, it's so funny because now I'm just like, oh yeah, that was my eighth grade teacher. But it's like, I don't think I would be anywhere where I am if she hadn't have, like influenced me in that way. She's an incredible teacher. I know you've described yourself as a, is it burnt out former gifted <laughs> <laughs> burnt out gifted and talented yes, yes yes so it's not like you weren't already thriving at school but it sounds like maybe she gave you a reason to want to thrive at school yeah well and also the thing about being a burnt out gifted kid is that like the burnout starts at different ages for different people and i got lucky enough that like my burnout really didn't come until somewhere between college and grad school but I think that was also part of it was the fact that like she recognized that sort of like you need to treat yourself kindly. Like it's great that you want to be perfect. It's great that you want to do everything correctly. But sometimes you're going to get a C on a math test and it's not the end of the world. You know, sometimes you are going to get the answer wrong. And that is also OK because you are still a valuable person. Um, and I think she was like one of the, she was one of the only people who like went out of her way to tell me that like just because you get an answer wrong it doesn't mean that you're a bad person it just means you didn't get an answer right like that's two very different things and that was like one of the first times in my life that I life that I had ever heard that you know what I mean yeah oh no those those kinds of moments are are so powerful and you're you just look back and you're so grateful that you had that to begin with yeah it's like my the whole like all three of my junior high teachers were just they were so good they were such good teachers I don't know what it was. It was like they, we had these three just like amazing junior high teachers. Um, I struggled out in grade school, but like my junior high teachers were like the best. What's uh, what's the oldest piece of technology that you remember using? One of like, you, oh God, I don't even know what, what make it was, but I was the first kid in my class to have a computer like at my house because my uncle at the time was working as like a very, very fancy, like a lot fancy. I think he was like an accountant. I never really knew what he did for a living, but I just knew he made a lot of money and he was very fancy. That's all I knew about my uncle um, at the time when I was a kid. But he, I think he was like an accountant or something, but he worked for a company that was very much like, we're going to adopt all of the new technology, like as soon as it comes out and stuff. And so his boss apparently had kids. And so my uncle didn't have kids, but his uncle was like, we, or his boss was like, oh my God, we love kids. Like whatever, we support kids. And so his boss would just let him take home like the used computer technology. Um, And so we had one of those like Macintosh apples with like the six inch screen where like all you could do on it was like type or like maybe and draw on like the really crappy paint but I still, but I still remember that. I still remember the paint because there were different textures that you could like paint with. And so I would like make these like weird designs on like in like the paint thing, and then I would print them out. But it was still the type of printer paper where you had to like tear off the edges. 
because <laughs> it was like all connected. And so like, yeah, we had, we had this like old, old ass Macintosh. And that was like my first experience with like technology. We had a similar kind of setup in my grandparents' house because my, my grandfather worked with computers. I just remember having to type in just long amounts of commands <laughs> to like get the computer game starting. Oh, it was yeah. one of those. Like it starts out with the black screen and white white letters. But um, <laughs> yeah, how far we've come. <laughs> right? It's so it's honestly like weird. Like because it, it really like happened over my like lifetime. Like I remember not having the internet. I remember learning in school, like how to like look stuff up in the library and how like a card catalog worked and how Wikipedia like wasn't trustworthy and like all of this stuff. And, and it's like, it's, I've just like, I was just there. Like I was like right at that right age where it was like seven was like when I got our first computer. And so like, I just like adapted, like as I grew up and like learned, like it kept learning, sure. but it's weird. It's weird to think about. Like, I, like, I'm the last generation of people who like didn't have the internet. And I think that's weird. Like, it's weird to think about. It's, it's very strange. And I'm, I'm in a similar boat. Like, I feel like the technology grew up with, with me. And it sounds like you feel yeah. the same way because yeah. like yeah. YouTube started to be a thing when I was, a freshman in high school. So I was like, that's mm -hmm. the perfect time. Like that to me is the ideal place where you want to really start getting into to YouTube. I know it's, yeah. used, you know, at much lower ages now, but like, and well, you know, the search engines were really getting good by the time I had to do research yeah. in college. And it just, um, it, it felt like it was maturing with me. Yeah. It's, it's just so weird too. Like now, because like I, like for a really long time, like, especially like after college, like I'm a full-time content creator now. Like that is what I do. I do YouTube and TikTok and Twitch and Inst you know, all of them. But like, I was always like one step behind. That's why this is so weird to me still was because like, I have a friend who's a fantastically talented photographer. And I remember like in college, when I was in college, it was like Instagram just got started. And so he being a very talented photographer got on Instagram, like right away, started posting pictures and it was like a whole thing. But now like, he is famous. Like he is a famous celebrity photographer and he's like traveled all over the world and he goes to all these like cool exotic locations and he meets like all of these famous people because he started posting on Instagram at, at exactly the right time. And then, you know, like I got caught on board like five years later, you know? And so now it's like, I look at all of this and I'm like, I have such regret. Like I have such regret that I was like scared to do in Instagram. I was scared to do YouTube. And now it's just like, oh, like it turned out that I'm actually pretty good at it and I really enjoy doing it but for a long time I was like oh I'm not a content creator I don't belong on social media like nobody cares what I have to say and it's just it's just weird it's just weird to think about that I just discounted myself and I was like I could have been right there with Hank Green <laughs> <laughs> for sure well and it's it's one of those things and I've I think you're a perfect example of this where the the more specific you are in telling your own story the more people are going to be able to see themselves in it, even if, yeah. you know, they don't have the same kind of neurodivergency than you, or even if they're not into theater or D&D &D or any of these things, you build up that community of people who see themselves in it in other ways. Yeah, exactly. Is there a misunderstanding from your childhood about life and how the world works that you could only kind of look back and, and laugh at right now? Oh man, I don't know if I have a, I mean, I have one, but it's a really inappropriate story. Do you want to hear a really inappropriate story? Go, go, go right ahead. Okay. So when I was a little kid, this is like such a dumb story, but here you go. This is what you get. Um, cause it's late. I'm tired. <laughs> so when I was a kid, I remember very specifically, I think I was like eight or nine and we were watching the movie, the cinematic movie masterpiece, Robin Hood, Men in Tights. Okay. And there's this part in Robin Hood, Men in Tights, where he's standing like behind a sheet. And he's singing a song and he like leans back. But as he leans back, his like sword scabbard like flips to the front. And so it looks like he has a boner, right? Like that's the joke. And all the guys go, because oh, they're like, oh my God, he has a huge boner. Like, right. But I was like eight and I didn't get the joke. And so I was, I thought that the reason why they were all very scared or, and all gasping was because they thought that he was going to like accidentally stab Maid Marian with his sword because he wasn't like controlling his sword. Also important in the story, I have a theater, I have a theater kid. 
And so as so then like I I did this I had this like complete misunderstanding of the joke and then for years for years afterwards whenever I was in a play where there were like swords I would walk around and I would do like sword boner to people and I'd be like ah you better watch out I'm gonna I'm gonna get you and then finally my dad had to be like Katie do you understand like what you're why why people do that and I was like well yeah because they're like they're worried that they're gonna get stuck with the sword and my dad was like okay come into my office we're gonna sit down we're gonna look at some medical textbooks and so like for years I went around threatening people with my sword boner uh because I just thought it was like a public safety thing I didn't think that it had anything to do with boners and that's the story I I love that so (laughs) much it's a stupid story but there you go (laughs) no oh gosh and to be back to be back at a time like that right uh right just pure and innocent it is it is so pure it is so pure i love that i was like now i'm a certified sex educator so it's like i couldn't unlearn it even if i wanted to (laughs) with actual paperwork that says i'm qualified to talk about i have a certificate (laughs) i love it what's a, a physical object that you've had for the longest that you still that you still own so this, we were just talking about it. I have a stuffed elbow. Okay. And I remember this is one of my, like, my earliest memories. A couple of days before we went to preschool for the first time. So like I was like small. I think I was maybe like four or something. But the preschool had a, had like a rule where you could bring one stuffed animal with you. Like that was like the, the rule. And they encouraged parents to like pick out a, a toy with your kid. And then that way they'll have like a connection to it. And they won't be as scared. And it was like a whole thing, you know. And so I remember very specifically, my mom was like, okay, like preschool starts tomorrow. Like we're going to go pick you out a special friend. And so we went and we had like, we went to like, I think it was like Toys R Us, which was also a big deal because we never went to Toys R Us. Like my mom hated that store. And so it was like extra special that we got to go to the toy store. And so we went and they had this like whole wall of stuffed animals and they had like all these like big giant, you know, teddy bears and all these like animals and stuff. And they had this like little Elmo that was about like this big. I was like, I want, I want Elmo. I want, I want Elmo. And my mom was like, well, don't you want like something bigger? Don't you want something like a, like a, like an animal or like a teddy bear? And I was like, no, I want Elmo. My mom was like, okay, have Elmo. And I still have Elmo. Elmo is sitting on my dresser. I have taken Elmo on every vacation and every appearance and every convention trip that I have ever been on. He has gone everywhere with me. And I just like, you know, I just, I'm not like weird about it. Like I, he just stays in my suitcase, but he's like my little like lucky, my little lucky Elmo. He's like, he's not even red anymore. He's like gray <laughs> pink. He's disgusting. Yes. He has like one eye. Cause like the eye, like the paint on the eye wore off. It's like tragic, mm-hmm. but he's like, he's my little, my little Elmo. And I've had him for as literally as long as I can remember. So that is why I think that's part of why I love the Muppets so much is cause I was just like, even as a kid, I loved the Muppets. Absolutely. <laughs> No, it's it's so great. I, I love asking this question because to see, it, it, it usually ends up being some kind of stuffed animal for most people. And to see what what kind of adventures they go on with people is just... Is he's really he's cool went to me. some very exotic locales, so... <laughs> <laughs> Much like the actual Elmo, so it's just living up it's, to its, it's potential. <laughs> by what made you want to start talking about ADHD and and neurodivergency? Was it something that snowballed, that it it kind of took off, you make one video and then another and people keep responding to it? Or did it feel more like a calling of, oh, I I could have been thriving much sooner if I had this diagnosis, I want to scream it from the rooftop or something in between? I think... I honestly, I was going to say, I think like a little column A, a little column B, because like originally it was a complete accident. It was a complete accident. Like I put, po- like I shit posted. I, I almost didn't even post it. But at the time on TikTok, there was this, there was this trend going around that was like things in my blah, blah, blah house that just make sense. And you would just fill in your own blah, blah, blah. And so I thought it would be funny because everybody who was doing it was doing like, you know, things in my 
interior designer home or things in my multi-million dollar home. And I was like, my house is not like that. Like my house doesn't look like any of these. So just as a shit post, I decided it would be really funny to do things in my ADHD house that just make sense. And then mine was like this pile of boxes that has been here for a year. Like all of these dishes that I forgot to do. Like, and I just kind of like made fun of myself, but it blew up. It was like huge. And you know, a lot of the comments were like, oh my God, that's so funny. But Quite a few of the comments were things like, I've never seen anybody's house who looks like mine. I've never seen a house like mine before represented. And I was like, I mean, I wasn't trying to like change the world here. I was just being an idiot, you know? But then somebody asked me, they're like, oh, well, like, how do you, like, what do you do for your ADHD? And so I made a video responding to that. And some people watched that. And then they asked more questions in the comments. And then so I asked more. And then like, the timeline is so weird because it all started snowballing so quickly that it was it was honestly hard to keep track of. But basically about like two weeks after that, I made I made like and I hadn't even made a handful. Like I was still doing like music stuff. I was still doing like costume stuff. I was still doing D&D stuff. Like I was just kind of like ADHD was part of it, but it wasn't like the whole thing. And somebody wrote me a message and they're like, I want you to know that I watched all of your videos about ADHD and I never seen somebody who explained it so well and in such a way that it made sense to me. And I went and I got evaluated and they said that I have ADHD. And that was the first one. That was the first. I stopped counting after like the 3000th one, but like, that's kind of like what happened was, is, was I had this very profound moment of like, oh, people are actually learning from my content. People are actually learning about themselves from my content. Um, and that was the point where I, I got very scared. I got very nervous. I also started taking it a lot more seriously and you can see the change. There's like a, there's like a day where like, if you go back through my content, you can see the day where I was like, this is the thing that I'm doing now. But yeah. And so then since then, like I've, I've tried to really keep a balance because one of the, one of the big problems with TikTok is that you get niched and it's like, I am not just ADHD. Like, you know, I am more than that. I'm more than my disability. Like I'm, I think I'm an interesting person. I don't know. And so, are. so I, <laughs> <laughs> and so like, I try to, I try to keep like a balance of like, I talk a lot about ADHD. I do a lot of ADHD stuff, but I also try and do like fun videos and videos that are just for me and, you know, like just being goofy or whatever, because I, I just try to show like the realities of living with ADHD is that sometimes ADHD is a thing that ruins your day. Sometimes it's a thing that makes your day amazing. Um, and sometimes it's like, also, did I mention that I'm in literally the world's foremost expert on Titus Andronicus? Let's talk about that today. And then people are like, what? And I'm like, yeah, I know. I had a whole other personality. You didn't even know about it. And so, yeah, so, so yeah, it definitely started as like, it kind of snowballed. And then as it snowballed, I started realizing just like the, the, the potential that I had to like help people and educate people, especially people from like similar backgrounds as me, the same experience as me, like growing up academically gifted and being told over and over and over that there's no possible way that you can have ADHD or autism or whatever it might be, because like, oh, you're so smart. You're so smart. You get good grades. Like there's nothing wrong with you. And so really like breaking the stigma and stereotype about ADHD has been a really big part of it, you know, because it's like, I have two master's degrees. I'm fucking amazing at school, but I can't keep my room clean. And that's two very different skill sets. You know, it's been, it's been a whole journey. I just talked for a really long time. I'm no, sorry. no, that's fine. It's, um, <laughs> it's such an incredible journey and something that I'm curious about because you you see it all the time, right? Someone watches Grey's Anatomy and they they <laughs> see someone come in with stomach pain and it's you know this horrible disease and it's like oh maybe I have that because I get stomach aches sometimes um, <laughs> or you know just WebMD like everything leads to cancer and I I it's almost become a meme in itself on TikTok of like everybody who goes on it you know diagnoses themselves immediately with with ADHD and I I wonder. Is that something that you have ever had to grapple with of in sharing this information? I have to imagine there are probably people who message you and say like, well, I can't keep my room clean either. Maybe I have it. And like, what's that balance of being open and respectful to anybody who's interacting with you, but not wanting to give in to people who are just making it about them and trying to claim something that isn't theirs? Well, I mean, I think I'm I'm always pretty careful in a couple of different like one, I'm always very transparent. I'm not a doctor. I'm just a nerd on the internet who learned a lot about my own brain because nobody else bothered to teach me. And so 
I mean, in the neurodivergent community, we have a lot of conversations about self-diagnosis and especially for people who are late diagnosed like me, we see that as actually a very common experience is finding out, like learning about the ADHD or the autistic experience via social platforms, social media, and that kind of thing. And people say, wait a second, well, I do that. And then they watch another video and they say, wait, I also do that. I do this and I do this and do this. And the thing that I would say is like, I mean, it's a twofold thing with self-diagnosis. First off, there's not an ADHD pie. We're not going to run out of ADHD if of people start yes. self-diagnosing. Like that's not how it works. But the second thing is if you go to the doctor because you have a headache and a sore throat and, you know, a fever and you're having trouble breathing, you know, you go to the doctor and you say, I'm not feeling well, pretty sure it's COVID. Uh, and the doctor goes, okay, well, let's run a couple of tests and see if it's COVID or maybe it's just the flu or maybe you have asthma or maybe you're, you know, have cancer, whatever it may be. And so for a lot of people, self-diagnosis is how they get the medical diagnosis. Mm -hmm. But within the medical diagnosis conversation, we also have to acknowledge the absolute privilege of access to care that we have in America. I'm lucky enough to have insurance through Chris working at the puppetry center. But there are a lot of people who don't. There are a lot of people who can't afford treatment. There are a lot of people who can't even afford an evaluation. Um, in other countries, ADHD is treated very differently. A lot of countries, there's not like an adult ADHD option. Um, it just magically disappears on your 18th birthday. And so, yes. Is it annoying that constantly every day I have to face either, well, everybody's a little bit ADHD. I get that a lot. I also get ADHD isn't real and you're a shill for big pharma and you're trying to, you know, push meth onto kindergartners. Oh, and then I'd get a lot of authentic questions. I really do get a lot of like, I struggle with this, that, and the other thing. Do you think that I have ADHD? And I say the same thing to every single person. I say it is entirely possible. People with ADHD struggle with all different kinds of things. It is a spectrum disorder. Some of us are very good at something. Some of us are very bad at other things. I'm great at school. I'm terrible at organization. I will always be on time. I will forget your birthday and I will do my laundry, but I will not fold it. You know, like that's my thing. And so I don't ever get mad or upset or frustrated because I don't think if somebody claims to have ADHD and they don't, they're not hurting anybody. Like if they're claiming ADHD for attention, then they have needs that are not being met. They have something else going on where they are in so much pain and they're in so much hurt that the best way that they can figure out to react to that is to say, I have this thing and everybody needs to pay attention to me because I'm not okay. Well, we still know that you're not okay. And that's, and that's part of it. Now, if somebody says I have ADHD and they spend a lot of time Googling, you know, ADHD tips and tricks and their life is immeasurably better because now they have a key bowl and they know how to like organize and they know how to strategize and make a schedule. They're also not hurting anybody. You know, really the only time when we get into a conversation about like, when is it harmful is if somebody starts self-medicating, you know, I'm going to take my brother's Adderall because I've decided that I have ADHD, right. but that's not an ADHD exclusive thing. The same way that I wouldn't diagnose myself with cancer, you know, and start taking your chemo. It's the same exact thing. And so Ultimately, at the end of the day, I am wholesale for the validity of self-diagnosis. I think it's really important, especially in the neurodivergent community, especially as we look at how biased and, and frankly racist and exclusive ADHD research still is. And even more than that, I think that it's important to acknowledge that because ADHD is a spectrum, somebody might not need medication, but still have ADHD. And somebody might be profoundly disabled by their ADHD. And both of those people are still just as welcome and just as valid in the community. So, No, they, thank you for that answer. And um, the aspect of people looking for, for help and, and solutions, regardless of whether or not they have the actual diagnosis, is I, I think a really great way to, to frame all of that. For you personally... What did that moment of the diagnosis mean to you in terms of things locking into place and being able to say, oh, I finally have a name for it? I mean, I already knew. I think yeah. that was also like part of it was like I kind of cheated the system because actually I, self-diagnosis, like when I first got my ADHD diagnosis, I was very uninformed about what ADHD was which is really interesting because now like I have actual therapists and doctors recommending my content, which is like weird, you know, but I was really uninformed about what it was, what it looked like, what it could be. 
But luckily, I have a friend who has profound ADHD and has lived with it his entire life. But he also, he also has depression like me. And so he was one of the first people who looked at me and said, like, fam, I think you have ADHD. And I had always kind of suspected, like, I had always sort of like read the the symptoms and, and all that stuff. And I'm like, oh, yeah, but like, everybody gets distracted, you know, everybody loses their keys or whatever. But it really took my friend looking at me and saying, like, I really think you need help. I really think that, like, you're not okay. But at the time, it's a really long story, but basically my ADHD had been livable for many, many years. I had sort of, like, learned how to deal with it. And then I lost an ovary. I had an ovarian torsion. I know now that ADHD is dramatically linked to your hormones. And especially, like, in women, like, monthly cycles, people with periods, your monthly cycle. And so, like... All of a sudden I was missing an ovary. My body was like, what is happening? And my ADHD got so much worse. I thought I had early onset dementia. That's what I thought was going on. And I actually went to the doctor, not necessarily to be like, oh, I have ADHD, but to sort of like confirm that my worst fears were coming true. Because like I was talking about earlier, as a Shakespeare actor at the time, I had just got a contract. I was doing three shows in rep. I was playing leads in all of the shows and I couldn't remember my lines. I couldn't sit down. I couldn't study my lines. I had no focus. If I did manage to sit down, I was absorbing like maybe a word. I wasn't getting them. Like I was, I was terrified. And I was like, I'd gone from being like a very prepared, very, very responsible, very professional actor to some schmo who like couldn't remember their lines. And that had, sorry, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but that had to be especially frustrating because you were just making it to the rep company. And there were maybe people who didn't get that, who were like, really? She? Oh, well, exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, my personal and professional reputation was on the line, yeah. you know? Um, and so basically, like, I, my friend had said, like, I, I really don't think you have dementia. I think you have ADHD. And I think, like, maybe you should go get evaluated. And so I did a bunch of research and I, I started, like, kind of looking. I was like, yeah, actually, I think you're right. And so basically, like, I got extremely lucky. Like, people ask me all the time, like, how do I get diagnosed? What was your diagnosis story like? And I always have to be like, my diagnosis story, I got so lucky and I lucked out so hard because basically my doctor is a former burnt out gifted kid with ADHD and anxiety. And so I went to this lady's office and I was like, so here's what's going on. And she's like, uh, yeah, like game recognized game. Like she just got it immediately. She knew what it was like to like go through school and like not really feel like it was all making sense. But like you scrape by by the skin of your teeth because like all of your self-worth is wrapped up in your school. You know, she just got it. She got the whole thing. And so she's like, yes. And so we did the evaluation. And then the day before my 30th birthday, was the day that they like looked at all the test results and everything. And they were like, yes, you have ADHD. Also BT dubs, you have profound depression. Uh, has anybody talked to you about that before? And I was like, uh, no. And so, yeah. And so then like on my birthday, I went on meds for the first time. And in roughly 25 minutes, my life changed forever. How did Titus Andronicus become the show for you? It's the best one. It's deep. Like, it's honestly, I just did it out of spite, frankly. um, Because there wasn't enough love for it? Well, yeah. It's the best. It is is one of the best Shakespeare plays. And it's so deeply underappreciated because of the violence. But the violence is like, it's part of it. It's part of the whole fucking thing. And nobody, oh, oh, I get so heated up. You've opened a can of worms. I apologize for nothing. But so basically, Titus was the first show that Shakespeare show that I ever I was ever in. Like that was it. And I played Lavinia, which is a weird introduction to Shakespeare. What a weird character to start with. But I loved it. I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the show and the characters. And like, honestly, I fell in love with like little baby Shakespeare. Because like, I really feel like in Titus, you get to know Shakespeare as a person in like this really funny way where like you watch him like, there are these moments of like brilliance where it's like, oh my God, this is like, I mean, Titus is proto Lear anyway, but like you, there are these moments of just like absolute textual brilliance and like just impeccable, like it's just so good. And then there's like a 10 minute scene where somebody falls in a fucking hole and you're like, what are you doing? And you're like, oh, he was new. It was one of the first shows he ever wrote. 
he had never staged a show before. He had never written for the stage before. He had written conceptually. He had written like, you know, like, oh, I have this like idea, right? But like Titus was one of the first shows that he like set out to be like, this show is going to be produced. And he fucked up. And there's all of these places where it's just bad. And it's great. Because then you like look at Winter's Tale, which was years later after Titus. And he wrote Winter's Tale so specifically for the theater that he was in. Like the reason why the Hermione like statue reveal is written the way that it is was because of the actual physical makeup of the theater. And it's like he learned his lesson. He learned his lesson about the fucking hole so he could write Winter's Tale. Like he learned his lesson about like waiting until the end to wrap up everything so he could like write Hamlet. And it's just, it's good. It's like the best show because of its imperfections. So that's why I love Titus so much. I know that's great. And you kind of, it sounds like it's almost a roadmap that gets you everything else. It's that first trip. So he knew how to run later on. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's like that, but I love it. And I got really interested in it. And then it was like, it was also, I mean, it was very TikTok-y in, in a way because it just sort of snowballed is like, I started way before I was like known on the internet. I was known on the internet as being the Lavinia girl because I did a blog. I kept a blog the entire time I played Lavinia. But what I did specifically was I talked about a lot of like the challenges of playing Lavinia, like how fucking annoying it is that you have like seven lines and then you don't get to talk for the rest of the play, but you're around, you are in every goddamn scene, but you got to figure out something to do. Um, But then also like my theater company, we had to figure out how to like make the stumps for like Lavinia's hands. If you've never read the play, Lavinia Lavinia gets her hands cut off at some point. It's a whole thing. But there was like no good tutorials about like how to make good Lavinia stumps. So like I posted the tutorial and then like people all over the world who were like doing Titus started like finding my website, finding my blog. Then they would send me emails. And then it was like, then I started picking up like consulting work where like I was doing a lot of like dramaturgy for like other people's Tituses and like all this different stuff. And then I went to grad school where I was like, oh shit, I get to pick whatever I want to do. And so I, I got two master's degrees in Shakespeare. And for the first one, I specifically focused on Titus. I did, I did my dissertation on Titus. But then for the second one, I kind of cheated the system a little bit because I didn't do it specifically about Titus, but a bulk of it was about how Titus is photographed. I did my second uh, thesis on photography as theatrical adaptation. And so I talked a lot about like adaptation and the act of taking pictures during shows and like what story are you telling and all of that stuff. But Titus is a perfect sort of microcosm of a lot of the arguments that I was using basically there's a lot of different ways that you can do a Titus. And so like, depending on how you photograph it, a lot of it is like, are you authentically representing the Titus that you put on or are you taking like good marketing photos? And there's a difference. So that was like my weird thing that I get heated up about is theatrical photography. That's I'm real cool. I'm fun at parties. No, this is, this is so great. Yeah. I like, I got really interested in just like the idea that technically speaking, every photograph any single photograph of any production in time or history can technically be argued to be a separate and specific adaptation of that show. And that apparently uh, exploded a lot of brains. (laughs) And so I went to a lot of conferences, talked a lot about photography, uh, and then got bored. And like, I literally haven't picked up my camera in like three years. (laughs) You leave it to your friend with the Instagram account. I know. I was like, that's fine. (laughs) and then what's the it sounds like you were already in the world of Shakespeare as an actress how does that knowing more about him and becoming that scholar make you appreciate the text more as your oh I don't no it's honestly like it's like working at a like I oh I work at a Burger King so I can no longer eat at the Burger King it's it's kind of like working at the Burger it's sort of like running like a world-class five-star Michelin restaurant, but only being able to get jobs at Burger King. Like, it's kind of like that. You know what I mean? Where it's just like, a lot. like the thing that I got the most frustrated with, and and this was something that had never occurred to me, and it just shows how like naive I am, like passionate. I remember the first time that I was like, I was in a, I was one of my first professional gigs that I'd ever gotten. And I was super stoked to be there. And I was like a new kid with like my fancy degrees and all this shit. And I was talking to this guy who was cast in like one of the major, major, like people would give a left fucking arm to play this Shakespeare character. I'm not going to tell you the show so nobody can Google it and find out who it was. 
but I was like, holy shit, like, are you just so excited? Like, I would, I would give anything to play this role. And he was like, I mean, it's a job. And I was like, no, but I was like, okay, but like, you're playing this role. And like, that's so cool. And he was like, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm not like a huge fan of Shakespeare, but like, you know, I saw the, I saw the ad and I figured I would like come out and I was like, I was so disappointed because I realized that I had for years sort of like built myself this little comfort zone, this little like bubble of people who were like just as obsessed with Shakespeare as I am, like live and breathe it. And then I got out of that bubble and I very quickly realized that to a lot of actors, like it says nothing about their talent at all. Lots of talented actors don't give a shit about Shakespeare, but they will take the job because it's an acting job. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, so it was, it was like, it was really hard for me to sort of like navigate that because I was like this deeply passionate, like I'd spent, literally five years doing nothing but Shakespeare and then like I got out of it and I was just like oh like you guys are just here for a paycheck this isn't like a lifestyle for (laughs) (laughs) y'all sure is there any element to it that you also feel like that sometimes the audience is kind of just obliged to be there because like oh it's Shakespeare so I I should go see it because it's at a theater and I I'm gonna feel cultured because of it (laughs) I think maybe a little bit, but like that, that's I've a been... very cynical view of it on my end. So no, maybe that's not I mean, balanced, you're not but... you're not wrong, but also because like I did like my after grad school, like one of the big ways that I I was making money as an actor was I was a teaching artist, which meant that a lot of times I was going into schools at like eight o'clock in the morning to perform Romeo and Juliet in their gym. You know, like not exactly conducive to like let us all embrace the glory of Shakespeare. But what I started doing, and this is, I don't know, here's some free life advice to any any actor who will be listening. Like, we all have, like, bad shows. We all have, like, those days where we're like, oh, my God, I want to do anything but be here and be Hamlet right now. But so what I always started doing was I started looking for the one kid because there's always one kid. Sometimes it's not a kid. Sometimes it's, a, it's an adult. Most of the time it's a kid, usually between the ages of, like, 11 and 14. And they start, their arms are all crossed, they're all grumpy, and they're just mad at being, oh, they're too cool to be here. And then at some point, they're going to lean forward just a little bit, and then they lean forward a little bit more, and then they're like, their hands are on their chin, you know, and they get so invested. And I remember being that kid. I remember the show that I saw that changed the way I thought about theater, that changed the way I thought about what theater could do and what was possible and like what it meant and what it meant to be an actor and a performer, like all of that stuff. I remember that. I remember that specific moment. And so like, I stopped giving a shit about the, you know, 700 angry, you know, 14 year olds who were mad about Romeo and Juliet at eight o'clock in the morning. And instead I would just do the show for that one kid. And that is something that has, I think, carried over into everything that I've done you know like even TikTok like people ask me all the time like oh aren't you always disappointed like when a video doesn't get a million views and I was like yeah but I don't make my TikToks for a million people I make my TikToks for the one person who hasn't heard it who who doesn't know the piece of information or who doesn't know whatever thing or just needs to hear the encouragement or affirmation or whatever that's who I make that video for. And so I think because of that experience, because of learning how to do the show for like just one person, I think it's it's made me a better actor. I think it's made me a better creator. I think it's generally like made me a better person because it's made me far, far less cynical. Like, I think it's really easy to get cynical about like, oh, I didn't get a million views on this one video. I'm a failure. But it's like, it's a lot less cynical to go, yeah, maybe only, you know, I don't know, you know, for me, 5,000 is very low. You know, maybe only 5,000 people saw this video, but like maybe two of them heard it and maybe two of them will remember it. Maybe two of them will feel less alone and less broken. And that's rad. I love that. What's something about your life right now that you think your past self would be proudest of? All of this. <laughs> like my, my, I was so afraid. I was, I was so afraid for a really long time. I was really afraid to be myself. I was really afraid to put myself out there. I mean, I was afraid of everything. Like I grew up in the Midwest. And so the thing that you did after college, if you were a theater kid in the Midwest was move to Chicago. That was like what you were supposed to do. You're supposed to move to Chicago. And I was too scared. I was way too scared to go to Chicago. Like I'd never been away from home. I didn't know how to do life on my own. And I was, I was really scared all the time. And so I sort of, I stayed 
in the Midwest, which I have regrets about. I do have regrets about staying as long as I did. But, you know, I stayed and then ultimately I was like, okay, I'd found this thing that I was deeply passionate about, which was Shakespeare. And so then I moved across the country for grad school. That was the first time that I'd ever really been on my own. And so, yeah, like, I mean, I think baby, baby Katie, like, you know, eight, nine, 10 year old Katie, I think she would be the most excited about the fact that I'm like famous. Like, I think 10 year old Katie would just think that was like the coolest thing ever. But I think like teenager Katie and college Katie, like, I think they are far, far more proud of the fact that like, I have built this by myself. I have built all of this from just being authentically myself about talking about the things that are important to me and helping people and being deeply passionate and deeply excited and and not as somebody who constantly apologizes for my existence, like with the people who know me, like I'm a serial apologizer. <laughs> but the one thing that I've never done is apologize for my content. You know, like today you get Shakespeare, today you get whatever, today you get ADHD, today, today you get kink, today you get sex ed or whatever. And it's because like all of those things are part of me. All of those things are part of who I am. All of those things are part of like what I bring to the table and like being able to build a community and to see that there are so many people out there who like do give a shit and who are excited to hear what I have to say and, and who I have helped and, and interact with. Like, it's so meaningful. It's so meaningful and it's so big and, and heavy and it's a huge responsibility. But I built all of it by just deciding that I was not gonna be afraid to be myself anymore. And I'm really, really proud of that. something that people think is easy about what you do as a content creator that's actually really challenging i think all of it honestly like i mean it's kind of a weird double-edged sword for content creators because there's a lot of money to be made in content creating i'm not making any of that money but you know maybe someday but it's weird because we consume content for free but it's also a job and so a lot of times like there's there's this very strange thing that happens where like i remember very specifically the first time that i did an ad people were so mad they were so angry they're like you've sold out you betrayed us and you're you were in this for and i was like i spend 14 hours a day doing this job and i'm making roughly two dollars a day from tiktok like i'm sorry but i needed the 800 bucks yeah. like you know what i mean and so i think that's part of it is understanding the amount of time and effort that goes in in ways that you don't think about because like the the example that i always give is like right now i have 1.5 million followers which is like on tiktok there are people with 42 million followers like i am not the upper echelon of what is possible on tiktok i'm very middle of the road and if i'm lucky on a good day a video might hit anywhere between 50,000 and 200 300 you know and then like the upper end is sort of like infinite like whatever you know but for those 50,000 people to see that video there's all of the behind the scenes stuff right is because that's what keeps the the sort of community engaged and my platform growing is like I get easily 500 to 700 dms a day on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, like all of them, I get DMs every direction. I have three different email addresses that I'm checking now. I have the podcast. It's just constant community engagement in terms of like interacting with people, making sure that people are okay, making sure that like my content isn't getting towards like the dark, nefarious corners of TikTok, pulling it back, you know? So there's a lot of maintenance. And so the thing that I always say is like, yes, it's really easy to look at the 15 second video of me like dancing in my kitchen and go, well, this idiot just throws up her phone, does a 15 second video. And that's the end of her work day. And I'm like, except that 1.5 million people has to be maintained and taken care of and appreciated and given back to and listened to and heard and validated. And so, yeah, the 15 second video took me 15 seconds, but let's also be honest. I did nine takes cause I'm a perfectionist. So I've, I've been working on this 15 second video for an hour but, you know, also I need to make three more videos today. I need to record a podcast. I need to answer an email. I need to check on sponsorships. I need to be active in all of the different Discord servers. We need to be active on my Discord server. I need to do a Twitch stream. I, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so it's like, yeah, it's it's very glamorous to get recognized at the grocery store. 
But uh, sometimes the grocery store is the only time that I've gotten out of the house that week because all I do is work. And so it's like, it's a really interesting balance of throwing so much time and energy and investment into this because I care about it so much. And I feel so honored to be where I am, but also it's like, it's cool if you want to sign up for my Patreon because I put a lot of work into it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so, so yes, it's a really interesting double-edged sword where it's just like, I always feel really awkward about asking for money and asking for support because I'm like, I, I don't do this for the money, but when it is your job at some point, it's like, okay, but like, I really do need the money. Yeah. I, I don't do it for the money, but I don't also do it to starve. Yeah. And it's like, and I'm, I'm really lucky in that at this point, especially with the success of the podcast, we've been exceedingly like, so like, I cannot stress how incredibly fortunate and privileged we are to like make our living being like Eric was able to move across the country and like be here so we could do the podcast full time and do content full time. And all of that is because of the, I mean, I'll call it what it is. It's a business. It's a business that I have built around content creation. And I think like, I think it's kind of like the arts. I think people are always like really hesitant to like treat it like a job. You know, it's like, oh, you're an actor. Like, that must be so much fun. And you're like, yeah, except for like the nine hours a week I spend standing in line in the freezing cold to get into the equity auditions, you know, like that kind of thing. I think they see the glamorous side. I think they see the fun side, but they don't see the like emails and messages, like all of just boring, regular person admin work. I spent this morning working on my taxes. That's like the most non-content creator thing I can think of, but it's like part of what I do now, you know? It's it's just as much an office job at times as uh, as anything else. I mean, I spend more time in my office now than I ever have. (laughs) It's like, this is absolutely an office job. It's just, it's just, I think a very like non-traditional way of doing it. Right. What's something that you wish people had more empathy about? Neurodivergency, I think in general, mental illness. I think the hardest part, the hardest part about this work is like, I joke sometimes. I'm like, I was, I always been like, I could have been a dancer. I could have done Shakespeare, you know, but I picked ADHD and I've been really lucky and I've been really fortunate. Literally thousands of people have come to me and they've said, I got diagnosed because of you or you saved my relationship or I understand my wife and my husband and my partner so much more like, oh my gosh. And that's super gratifying. The thing that sucks and is really hard and I still don't have the perfect solution for is how many people a day reach out to me with just heartbreaking stories. You know, like people's husbands hiding their medication or like be literally physically abusing them because like they talked about them in therapy or people being in horrifically unsafe environments or, you know, all of this different stuff. And it's like, they come to me because like, I, I am a safe space for them. I'm a safe person for them. I have trans kids come out to me all like I've had so many trans kids just say, you're the only person I feel like I can tell. And so I do my best to support those people. And I, and I do my best to always be a listening ear and always provide support. I have so many resources and like little, you know, things like copy and paste it on my phone, you know, cause I get probably 25, 30 people who are suicidal, like in crisis, I get about probably 20 a week, just people feeling like I'm the only person they can tell they're thinking about ending their life. And so part of it is like, just for me knowing that like, I'm not going to be able to help every person. I'm not going to be able to teach everybody in the world, like what mental illness is, what neurodivergency is, how it actually works, what it actually looks like. Like the thing that I wish is just, I just wish people were kinder. I just wish people, instead of assuming the worst and and assuming malice and, and ill intent, I wish that they could, honestly, just that I could show them my messages and just say like, there's so many people in this world who are hurting and scared and they feel alone and broken and not okay. And they've been told this over and over and over their whole life. And it's like, you meet those people for you know 10 seconds in a video or you see their content or whatever it may be. And it's like, it costs nothing to be kind. It costs nothing to be gracious. It costs nothing to give somebody the benefit of the doubt. It, it costs you nothing to not pick a fight with a stranger at the grocery store because they're humming or whatever neurodivergent thing it may be. And that's what I I wish. Like, and I think that's also like my goal is it's not to be the most smart ADHD educator in the world. It's not to, you know, be the best at teaching about whatever. It's just teach people about kindness and the importance of kindness and compassion 
and understanding, especially with how divided everything is right now, you know, and it's, it's just weird being the center of this, like, frankly, very cushy job where I get to just throw up my phone and have thoughts and feelings and, and, you know, whatever. I just, I just, I don't understand how so many people can be so unkind and, and it's just because they were hurt. It's because the world was unkind to them. And so they're not doing it on purpose. They're just doing what they were taught. And so it's like just modeling kindness and compassion and empathy. Like that, I think, is, is what I wish people knew more about is just how easy it is to be kind if you just take a second and take a breath. I don't know. Maybe that's a little rosy colored glasses, but that's where I'm at. No, I, but I think it is those solutions that even if people were able to do that 10% more in their day, you know, it's writing a very, very large ship. But if we could all just make those tiny efforts to hold your tongue or go the extra mile to say something nice or just be more understanding, it makes a world of, of difference. Exactly. So what's the what's the dream role for you on stage that you haven't been able to to perform yet? That's a really tough question because I I want a couple of do overs. That's okay. really oh that's it. fair. Be- that's fair. Is because I, so I have this like weird thing where I'm just constantly in rotation of five different roles and it's just the same roles over and over and over again. But it's, it's Kate, Beatrice, Lady Macbeth, Helena. And then like, if some director has very poor taste, Puck, every so often I get, I get cast as Puck. I really, really want another shot at Kate and Beatrice and Lady M. I've done them both, all three of them, multiple times at this point. Like I've done it over and over and over but I like it's always been like I had like, you know, like one time I had like kind of a shitty Benedict and like the other time, like the, the you know, like the play just itself wasn't very good. And so I've always wanted to just like be in a really good production of, of like the big five, yeah. you know. But honestly, honestly, my real answer, Mephistopheles <laughs> in Faustus. I got to do it like once I got to I got to be Mephistopheles once and it was for like a, a directing showcase. And so it wasn't like the full show, but it was just like a, a little scene, like a 20 minute scene. Yeah. I am not a bad Mephistopheles. <laughs> like, but the thing is too, is like, it's so weird. It's like, I'm very like, I'm witty. I'm not funny. My sister is hysterical. I'm not funny. She is. But I'm really, really good at like that very specific, like sort of like Shakespeare witty smart funny woman mm-hmm. like that's like i'm good at those i'm a garbage mariah every so often i get mariah mariah's too funny she's too funny beatrice is like the most funny i can be like and and it's 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 hard but i'm really good at like the tragedies i'm great at tragedy so i really like like lady and i've played a bunch of the witches like a bunch of times so i always really like the witches because you just get to like chew on the scenery oh, sure. and just like do whatever the fuck you want but yeah i think mephistopheles i would love to do henry i'd love to do prince hal I've like I've done Prince Hal in so many different directing scenes, but I would love to just do like the full Henry ad. I think that would be rad. I love this is a weird one, but Cardinal Wolsey. I'd love to play Wolsey and Henry VIII. Like I think that would be dope. There's like there's just so many good ones. Coriolanus is another one. Oh god, I played his mom so many times in grad school. <laughs> Fucking hate that show. Fun fact about Coriolanus: you know that you can essentially just take Coriolanus out of Coriolanus and it's still the same play. I did not know. There's that. like there's like three scenes. I don't know. I'm really like, familiar oh, with that show. Actually, it's not it's not the best. It's not the best one. But it's it's Coraline's so weird because everybody just talks about him and around him, oh, okay. and tells him what to do for like the entire show. And it's like really interesting. So there's like three things that you'd have to like actually change. Otherwise, it's like pretty much the same show. Yeah. And Imogen, I've never played Imogen, and I love Cymbeline. I love Cymbeline. I love to play Imogen. I think she's, I've done her monologue for years for auditions. That was like my back pocket monologue. I've never gotten to play her. So. Well, we'll, we're, we're putting it out there in the world now. So hopefully people are are listening. Sesame Street and Shakespeare. Call me up. (laughs) Call my agent. And by my agent, I mean me. I have no agent. I'm not fancy. (laughs) But we know you could check an email. So. I can check. I do. I'm great at that. Shoot me a DM on Twitter. (laughs) I'll be in your play. <laughs> <laughs> how can uh, how can people learn more about you and your work? 
Oh, that's a great question. Um, so I'm Katieosaurus across all social media platforms. If you want to find me on anything, um, I also have a website. It's katieosaurus.com. Um, if you want to check out the podcast that I've been alluding to so very often, it's Infinite Quest. Uh, we talk about life with ADHD and depression and navigating life as neurodivergent adults. You can find it at infinitequestpodcast.com. You can also just listen to it wherever you listen to podcasts. We are on everything. We're even on Amazon now because we're very Ooh. fancy. So Katie and Eric's Infinite Quest is the name of it. Um, but yeah, it's um, I'm all over the place. Just search Katie Soros. She'll find me one place or another. Excellent. Well, Katie, one more thing. You have taught me so much about being a kinder, more empathetic member of our community. Aww. I want to thank you for making this world a safer place for people to be them true selves, their true selves, and um, keep being your passionate authentic self well thank you so much that really means a lot to me i appreciate it absolutely thanks thanks so much for coming on (laughs) so awkward when people say to you i'm just like oh god they're saying nice things to me oh no i might have to internalize them (laughs) oh (laughs) well thanks for having me on absolutely it was great to have you we did it You came to the end of another episode of This Should Have Been a Phone Call. Thanks so much to Katie for making time to talk about all of these incredible facets of her life. If this is your first time listening, there are plenty of other episodes of the show. Just go to phonecallpod.com and you can listen to all of them right now. Please give us a follow at phonecallpod wherever you get your social media. And if you're feeling brave, I always appreciate a good review or comment over at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps the show grow, but it also puts extra fries at the bottom of the bag. So I definitely appreciate that. We'll see you next time on This Should Have Been a Phone Call. And one more thing, I love you, you are enough, keep going.